I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi everyone and welcome to Confessions of a Debut Novelist with me, your host, Chloe Timms. This week... I'm talking to Emma Hines about her historical novel, The Knowing. Emma has a master's in creative writing from the University of St Andrews and has settled in Manchester where she's a queer playwright and novelist. Emma is prolifically known online in the fan fiction community, keeping up with her followers using Discord and Patreon. In this episode, we discuss giving her female characters agency in a Victorian era, her brilliant tips to find an agent, how she uses fan fiction as a playground, and the long and difficult submission process she went through. But first, here's Emma with an excerpt from The Knowing. I turned to the cards. Four of wands. The happy couple danced under their bower, the golden ink swirling around them. Hey, how do the pictures move like that? The man slurred, pointing to the cards. It's called opium, Martin, Chester said, and the room laughed. The bower broke and the secrets fell out, wisps of yellow ink bleeding into the grey smoke around us. Behind him, over Martin's shoulder, anger was taking form. The resentment of it was almost burning. I felt sweat on my brow. Still, I would not look. But when I will not speak, the cards do. You've played away, I said. She knows. The room was quiet for a second, then laughter rose again like bubbles in a glass. This is what you get, Martin, for dipping your quill all over the slums. Chester shook his head. Word travels amongst whores. Martin looked up at me, his face sallow. He didn't seem to want to hear Chester. She knows. Eight of cups reversed, I said. She's walking away. I turned the card. The eight cups emptied their blue liquid of happiness out over the wanderer, spilling them on their way. I saw it rise like steam around us, colouring the watching faces. I wondered how they couldn't taste the regret in the air, wondered how they could breathe with the malevolence that filled the room. Walking away, Martin gasped. She'll leave me? Your wife can't leave you, Chester snapped behind him, perhaps irritated at his friend's fascination, but his words were water on a stone to Martin and I, trapped in the cards with their secrets. She's no money of her own. Where would she go? Back to New Jersey? She has to, I said simply. I turned the final card over. The man juggled the many knives speared from all sides by betrayal. The Seven of Swords. She knows about her father. The shadow behind Martin was tall, now a shape in the corner of my eye, looming and reaching for me. I refused to look at it. I will not look at you. You cannot have me or my voice. It was pressing, wrathful. My fingers trembled with the effort of not looking. 
yet still the secrets travelled on the opium smoke, angry words and fury from the long dead. Hi Emma, welcome to the podcast. I'm really happy to have you on with me today to discuss your debut novel, The Knowing. Yeah, I'm really excited to be here. It's it's so good to be here. Thanks Emma. So can you start by giving us a little intro to The Knowing? Tell us what it's all about. Yeah, sure. So um, The Knowing is the story of a queer tattooed mystic named Flora, who is living in the slums of New York, a slum called Five Points uh, at the um, end of the 19th century. And she is in an abusive relationship with her partner called Jordan Whittaker, who is a tattoo artist and has tattooed her from head to toe all over her body. And she's stuck in this situation until one day she meets a dazzling, exciting, disabled circus performer called Minnie, who uh, whisks her way uptown and introduces her to a, a whole new world and uh, a whole new different way of being which Flora needs to navigate using not only her wiles from uh, living in the slums, but also uh, her ability, her mystical abilities and her ability to talk to ghosts. Mm. And I wondered where this novel began, really, because I read that um, Flora was kind of partly inspired by a real life tattoo artist. But I know there's a lot more to this. To this. Mm. Yeah, so oh, she yeah. is. Yeah. Uh, when I... Um, I knew pretty much from the beginning that I wanted something that was set in the 19th century. That's always been an era of history that's very important to me and interesting to me. And I write historical fiction basically across the board. Um, that's something that I've always written. So I'm always looking to the past and reading a lot of historical fiction to find inspiration. So I knew I wanted the 19th century. I just moved to Manchester and I knew that I wanted to write about Manchester. And I started looking into that particular um that particular time period and a particular uh, place and I came across sort of the sideshow culture and freak shows and everything that involved and then I started looking into who was performing to kind of get ideas of what if I had a character who was in the sideshows or the freak shows what might they look like what might they be like uh, what kind of person might they be uh, I already knew I wanted them to be a mystic but I was just sort of investigating and I got really interested in the idea of the tattooed people who were often on display in Victorian freak shows. So I started looking for uh, Victoria, you know, doing that Google type, which is like Victorian tattooed women, head to toe, blah, 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 going down all these spirals. And there were some amazing archives that helped me. But sometimes the wonder of Google is it spits out something that's only just related. Mm. Um, and that's kind of how I came across Maud Wagner, Maud Wagner, who is not a circus performer at all, but um, she was one of the first female tattoo artists in New York and in America. Um, and she, uh, yeah, she lived in uh, New York with her husband and he was a tattooist as well. And he'd had tattooed her all over. So um, there's an amazing picture of her uh, just sort of resting her head on her hands looking down the lens of the camera in that very sort of stoic Victorian way with all of her tattoos on display across her chest and arms and um yeah I sort of looked at her and I was like yeah, yeah. I want I want a main character who looks like that uh so that's I basically just sort of got inspired by her um the fact that she was a tattooist was really interesting to me and that's why I I wove ta flora 
being the person who also does tattoos as well as I wanted that sort of active agency for her so yeah that's where she came from really she was sort of a combination of things and then once she got on the page she took off and sort of became herself. I'm going to google this picture afterwards because I'm intrigued to see what um, Maud looked like I think. Um, yeah she's, she's great she's <laughs> great yeah if you just type in Maud Wagner into google and first female tattoo artist or something like that yeah. she wasn't the only one obviously there were lots of people also doing tattoos and also in native culture in America there were lots of people tattooing so yeah but there's a great picture yeah it's interesting what you say about making her a tattoo tattoo artist as well because um I've spoken to a lot of historical fiction authors and the always the main issue seems to be with when you're wanting to write a story centered around women how do you give them the agency in a story where the patriarchal society is so controlling mm. and them active flora doesn't have that problem she i mean she does in some ways but she she's very active as a character was that a conscious mm. thing trying to kind of break her free of those shackles yeah it's interesting because i think possibly maybe the first draft that i wrote one of the notes i got back from a reader uh, a friend who's also a writer is that she was too passive like everything was happening to her and she wasn't taking control of herself and i think a lot of the times that's easy to slip into when you are writing historical narratives. Um, this idea that things just happen to people and especially if they're people without power. And so then it's finding ways to give them power and give them choices in a situation where they have none or they are very limited. Generally, it sort of, it does help if your characters are either very poor or very rich. <laughs> um, because at that point in history, in the Victorian era, if you're poor, then yes you have uh, less systemic you have no systemic power really if you want to write about uh somebody who has a lot of agency you generally need to give them a lot of money so that was the big conflict i think yeah yeah right? they don't she doesn't have any money um and so as she finds herself in these situations with generally people who have more power than her so mm -hmm. how do i give her voice and agency and on top of that she does have a mystical power which she's still trying to She's learning to wield. So how do I balance those things all together? Really? Yeah, as we're on the topic of that, um, and hopefully we can talk about this without kind of giving too much away because you mm. do have this like magical supernatural element to the novel, which is her, well, which is the title of The Knowing. Um, mm. How did you balance that kind of magical supernatural with the very grounded historical story? Um, that's a good question. I think... It's something that comes naturally to me. It's the story I always want to write. Um, I love historical fiction so much and I have such an appreciation for people who do it incredibly well. Like um, sort of my, my literary heroes are kind of Hilary Mantel and Sarah Waters and Pat Barker um, and other writers and, uh, Deborah Levy, people who really capture the historical moment and make it come alive. I find that so, so powerful and wonderful to read. But I can't stop writing about magic. <laughs> uh, it always finds its way in. Um, and I think part of that is my own kind of spirituality and my own experience of the world. I was brought up in a very uh, evangelical Christian upbringing and I think something that that does is 
gives you a sense that the world is more than it is mm. um so I've never had a, I didn't have like necessarily a very rational upbringing and uh now that I am no longer in that religious space I think that gives me more spiritual exploration mm. um so maybe I think part of it is my own perspective on the world and its imaginative possibilities yeah so maybe it's because I'm going through the world expecting or hoping to find magic mm. you know in that very childlike way so <laughs> then I write it I write it into my books uh, as well it is real it's really there it's that wonderful moment isn't it of that you have from childhood of you want the world to be magical and in fiction I get to make it magical so yeah. it's our world it's just got that one thing that makes it sparkle or in this case get very very dark and shadowy very quickly <laughs> yes absolutely I wanted to touch on the kind of diversity of your novel and um mm. you've got three characters you've got um disabled characters you have um a Romany character um mm. and obviously again when we talk about historical fiction we're so used to it being very white very straight very um mm. masculine I suppose um how important was it for you to fit that representation into in a historical novel well I think it's, it was really important to me because I wouldn't have written it mm. otherwise um because the kind of historical fiction I like to read is historical fiction that is focused on bringing to life stories that have been glossed over or lost because of a white western heteronormative patriarchal view so I want to read stories that are about uh, people of different cultures, uh, you know, disabled people, queer people, women. And um, there are, and in, when it comes to writing, there are things that like are not obviously not appropriate for me as a, a white woman, a white cis woman to write. But um, I wanted to write what I could, which is, you know, queer women's experience and um, living with like a chronic illness and and a partner with a disability that as well but honestly it's not like I set out going I'm gonna write this really queer really representative fiction because I think if you set out from that goal you never get anywhere like what I wanted to do was I wanted to write a really cool story about the things that are, are interesting to me. And what was interesting to me was the 19th century. And then I started looking into freak shows. It, it, you don't have a white upper class freak. Like they don't, that doesn't exist by the nature of the, the performers who were enlisted to be the freaks, you know? Uh, the whole point is they're other from traditional society. So uh, I knew that I would be writing characters who have been othered and characters who are I was I knew it was likely I was going to be writing a disabled character because the majority of so-called freaks in these shows were people with physical dis who what we now would say obvious physical disabilities um and as for writing queer like I always write queer because I'm queer I'm, I'm not interested necessarily in heteronormative love stories uh because it doesn't it, I tend we tend to read what the romance that we experience in life. Yeah. 
you know we need need more historical fiction that is like this fundamentally like we need these characters in fiction yeah tell me a little bit more about your research because I'm always fascinated what the point is where you've where you almost go okay I've done enough research now I'm going to write and then obviously Mm. research every now and again but did you reach did you reach a point where you kind of stopped researching or were you just no (laughs) (laughs) I I'm some I think some people do do write like that um my partner is very much research first then write um I'm not I I'm like a chaotic kerfuffle that just kind of blusters through I think it's because generally like this story the ideas or snatches of the I write I'm very dialogue heavy at the beginning like snatches of the dialogue come first uh, just the ideas and bones of like characters or places they usually might have started from a historical tidbit and then it flows from there but I research as I go it never stops the research it's always ongoing and it just sort of piles up alongside and I write and I research and I write and I research and sometimes I'm writing more than I'm researching and sometimes I'm researching more than I'm writing but yeah I don't ever have that feeling of I've done enough research and now I I know enough that I can just write the book if I start with research on the page then it can get very exposition heavy and I need to keep it focused on the story so I might have the bare bones of the scene like I might have dialogue and what I know this the moment needs to do in terms of the narrative and I'll have that kind of on the page and then I will use research to flesh flesh out and make it more real and more alive sometimes that's what I, I found held me back sometimes when, I, when I'm trying to write something historical where you start writing a sentence and you're like wait what would they be wearing what would it feel like um what would the smell be what what's under their feet like and you you go down all these questions and then you kind of almost feel paralyzed and I think your idea of writing down the bones and writing down the dialogue first and then going back and kind of filling mm. it around sounds like a great way of doing it I wondered whether yeah. because you um are also a playwright whether the dialogue is the thing that kind of comes to you first and that's the shape of your novel. Mm. yeah dialogue always comes first and yeah part of that might be playwrights um, my background in that but I think it the instinct kind of predates playwriting I think it's just the way my mind works um it's quite comforting there was a in Miss Lexia magazine which is like a women's writing magazine in the UK uh Hilary Mantel did an, an interview which she talked about the Mantel method for writing and one of the things she said there was like uh this idea of like being a magpie and you just pick up bits as you go throughout the day that might like help with with the book and and some one of the things she said is that snatches of dialogue will come to you and that's very much how it she she talked about it as kind of like this mystical thing you know random things will just start dropping into your head but that's very much how it works for me like snatches of dialogue appear in the shower or <laughs> while I'm making toast or tea they just they just are there and I hear the voices first and then go from there so you're quite instinctive in the way you write um, planning or no planning or do you do you write in order chronolo- chronologically or do you kind of just write what comes to you? Um, now I am much more of a planner. Um, I think at the beginning, though, of a book, it's really good to kind of keep a looseness to it. Um, 
and all of this I didn't know when I was doing when I was writing the knowing because the knowing was my first full-length novel ever and I have since written many many more but like it was my first time through and when it's your first time through ever writing a novel from beginning to end I'd written short stories and I'd written plays but it's not the same um you know you've got no idea what you're doing (laughs) you don't know what the best way is to write a book because you've never done it before and you kind of just have to bash it out and find out what works for you um and go from there um and since then I found that in the beginning I like to keep a kind of looseness I like to read a lot around but what I like to do is um just scribble so I still write longhand basically and try and write as much as I can bear to longhand before I get to the point where my brain is a bit full and then I need to put it into I use Scrivener so into Scrivener it goes and then what I tend to do is um is do lots of graphs and timelines and historical mapping and try and get a sense of an overarching narrative uh so I know where I'm going and then I uh I I long I write longhand a chapter in my notebook and then I take it onto the computer and edit it a bit and mess it around a bit and then I write the next one longhand and then I go back to the computer so I switch between uh, until I've got a full draft and then um, and then take it to people and and get their opinions and try and work back from there um but when I was doing the knowing I had absolutely none of that experience um that I now have uh I didn't even really know how important longhand writing was to me I was just I would be switching on the computer when I got home from work and just trying to bash things out and sort of staring at the the blank page and thinking oh god what am I going to do but I think the other difference is as well that when I was writing the knowing I was working full-time and I think it is a different beast because often I would have long gaps between writing times so I would write and then maybe I'd have two weeks where I had no time to and so by the time I came back to it I might have forgotten (laughs) what I'd written so I'd be rereading but I also in those two weeks will have maybe gathered new ideas for where I want to take it and so then I would be bashing out those new ideas based on something I might have scribbled down or a note I might have taken or something I might have read in a in a book or on a page or like an article or something um so it was a very different process for the knowing than it is than it is now um only slightly less chaotic. <laughs> I think that's never going to change. I think that's always going to be your way. Mm, yeah, <laughs> probably. Probably. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. 
So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Um, I'd love to hear about your kind of journey to publication. Um, mm. I want to touch on your um, fanfic writing in a bit, but obviously you've been writing for years. How did you mm. get to that point? How did you um, get your agent, your book deal? How did it all work? Yeah. Uh, so like I said, I've been, write- I've been writing the Gnome for a long time. Uh, that is partly because I was working full time, but also partly because I was also in theatre and focusing on theatre more than my novels. So I was taking big breaks in between and coming back to it. And I was also not sure how to finish a novel so that was that was a big thing. I knew how to finish a play so that helped so I finished I started probably in 2014 and I finished a first draft all the way through I would probably say in 2019 uh, and that went out to some friends and then in 2020 uh, my great friend Rachel Mann who is a poet and a writer and an archdeacon in the Church of England, um, read it for me and sat me down and ripped it to shreds. <laughs> like all good friends do. Yeah, and it was so necessary. And I, I absolutely advocate for having a person in your life, if you are a writer, who is not going to read for changing this word or changing that word or, or, or for your historical mistakes, who is going to read for your, your structure. Mm and for the possibility of the book. And who's going to be the person who can sit there and say, what would it be like if you just switched the orders of all the chapters, just move them all around? Or what would it be like if you wrote in a different tense or in a different point of view and just really pours boiling oil on the situation in a way that at the time will feel horrible, um, but will also be incredibly exciting, hopefully. Uh, that's how I always feel is at the time there is a part of me that's intensely resistant but then it's so incredible because you suddenly start looking at it completely differently and it makes absolutely difference so uh, she really helped me transform the book in 2020 and towards the end of 2020 I knew that I was done in the sense that I knew that I could go no further on my own um and I needed an agent. I needed somebody within the industry to sort of take a look at it and, and get something going for me. So uh, I entered a lot of competitions and some of them were really helpful. And I always recommend that to, to novelists who are starting out. I uh, was 
long listed for the dyslexia competition, novel competition, which to be honest, actually just really helped me finish the damn thing in the first place. Um, I was also uh, a penguin right now, um, long listed for that. That was great because that was the first time that anyone in the industry looked at my work uh, because part of the, the sort of prize at my stage of that competition was that I got to go to Newcastle, meet uh, like a hundred other debut novelists, uh, sat on a table with other people who were writing historical fiction and queer historical fiction, which was great. Got, got like a chat from, you know, on the stage from Kirsty Logan and other authors, and then got to have like 10 minutes sat down with an editor looking at my first chapter and giving me feedback. It was so valuable. So I, I always recommend that as part of the process. So I was doing the competitions and I was also getting a lot of uh, seeking out kind of anything that was to do with agents and publications from uh, writing platforms. So Miss Lexia were great. They run like loads of different workshops that writers can attend, the Society of Authors, anything like that, anything where I could get online for not very much money and listen to an editor or a publisher or somebody tell me stuff about the industry that was going to be helpful. I was picking up tidbits from that about how to approach agents because I didn't know anything mm. you know I had I knew that they were out there these mystical <laughs> beings agents and that I had to catch one and I was like what do I need a butterfly net I don't know um I had no clue and doing these kind of workshops and those sorts of things um they were really helping me uh get a sense of how to approach them like I I really absorbed the advice that you should look into you should look at agents specifically who are looking for something like you like agents will put stuff out on twitter if they're looking so have like know what the hashtags are and, and use twitter to look for the agents um look through different agencies and read the agent bios see what they're looking for and then batch approach agents you know in batches of maybe five send emails um wait and see what kind of feedback you get keep track of everything kept a spreadsheet um so I was, I was, I was on it. I was treat. I was going into battle, the battle of finding an agent. I had a spreadsheet and everything. And that was 2021. And there were real low points in that. Um, after May, I, I think I sent to about 50 different agents. And I think maybe after like 25, 30, I was really starting to flag. Yeah. And 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 especially because the biggest thing that um that you do hear from agents is it's great it's just not for me mm. and that's so hard as a debut novelist because there's nothing you can do with that <laughs> <laughs> you can't go back to them and just be like but please <laughs> um and and the thing about an agent is you need them to love it mm. you know and at that point, I didn't know how valuable that was. So part of me was just going, I don't care if you love it, please just take it. Mm-hmm. Um, but you do need them to love it. You need them to really want to represent you and your work. Um, and then I sent to I sent to Soho and I actually sent to a different agent in the Soho agency who then passed it on to my current agent, Alice Saunders. And um, within within like 20 minutes of our first meeting I knew that Alice was going to be the right agent for the book um 
And everybody said to me at the time, they were like, you only need one. You only need one. So just keep going. But, oh, my God, it was so disheartening at the time. And I remember that. And and I'm going to be that person to other debut novelists to just be like, you have to just keep going. I'm so sorry. It's a hard truth, isn't it, really? Because, like, yeah. 50 and you almost feel like, what's the point? If 50 people don't like it, then clearly there's something wrong with it. But the reality is it's all about taste. And like you say, you just mm. need to sees but not only just sees the potential in it but also how they can help you make it better because yeah the right person to do that yeah and agents are not out here being like agents love books and that's the thing I I think it's it's hard to internalize but they love reading they love books they want books to go to the right place and they have to love it and they have to to have a passion for it deep burning inside them. But it also needs to fit with what is going on with their agency and their list at the moment. And I sometimes got people coming back being like, this is great, but I have someone mm. doing this right now. Yeah. And that's that's really hard, too, because then you're like, well, there's nothing I can do. Like I, something there's a, agents only have so much time in the day and they they only have so many people on their list and. And that that is really hard to live with. But it does mean that when you do get the agent, they do love it. And they will and they will fight for it. Mm. And and the thing I learned on my journey is that's what you really need, because it's not always easy and it doesn't always come quickly. And the knowing did not come quickly. We we sent it out into the world. We got knocked back. And so we I sat down at and on the back of those kind of feedbacks, Alice and I sat down and Alice was like, so what do you want to do? There seems to be a theme um, in some of the feedback here. Do you want to make some changes? Do you want to go back into the manuscript and give it another work over and we'll go out again? And I said, yeah, okay, I'll do that. And that was most of my 2022 was, was taking the feedback, reworking the manuscript over the summer, then resubmitting. And then going through the process of meeting publishers and getting rejected by publishers and having it almost work out with publishers and then being absolutely heartbroken when it doesn't work out with publishers. It was a real, that was kind of my summer slash autumn of 2022. And oh my God, I I was, I cannot tell you how heartbroken I was. Yeah, yeah. When, when I, there was a particular publisher who they were really, they loved it. But it just didn't it didn't work out mm-hmm. in terms of the and it wasn't to do with me or the manuscript. It was to do with the the internal goings on of what was going on with the publisher and the books that they had and what they needed at the time for their for their organization. And it had nothing to do with me. And in a that's what made it so sad and so heartbreaking in my end. Because when there's something you can control, you're like, well, if they don't like the character, maybe I can fix the character. But when it's nothing to do with you, that it's just absolutely a kick to the head and that's why it's so important to have an agent that loves your work and goes I'm going to keep selling I'm going to keep pushing mm-hmm. um and absolute credit to Alice that's what she kept doing and we had a real lull at the end of 2022 and the list of people that were reading the manuscript was getting smaller and smaller and and I and people kept passing and I I remember I had to have this conversation with Alice where I was just like, what happened? 
if no one takes it. Yeah, yeah. Because I didn't, that's the other thing as well as a, as a debut novelist, I didn't know, you know. And um, there is so much that's unclear about the industry as in your first time. And you're learning everything as you go. And the thing that you learn is that there's a, a route that you are kind of expected to take, which is you get your agent and then the agent sends out the book and then hopefully you get a publisher and that's your first book and then you get to write a second one, hopefully, if the publisher likes you. So there's a route. Nobody talks necessarily about what happens if the route doesn't work. Mm. And so I had to have this conversation with Alice. So I said, what, do I, what happens if no one takes it? And Alice was amazing and really honest and was just like, I will sell. I will keep selling it. It's not, it's not going to stop my end. I will keep putting it out. But I will also sell whatever you write next. Mm. And that was very much a moment of, I have to write something else now. Mm. And I have to write something else with this feeling of kind of incompleteness inside me that the knowing doesn't have a home and maybe it never will. And I just have to try again and do write another book. And I actually wrote three. <laughs> um, I had a wildly productive six months, um, which is partly like disassociated panic and terror that it wasn't going to work and that nobody was going to publish me and, and my dreams were going to be completely dashed and we had no money. So I was like, I'm just no, so hard. Mm. Um, and then, you know, it, it was, it was like magic. One day I just, I think Alice had kind of, it happened very fast, but Alice had also been aware that we'd had a couple of block, no back blowbacks and I was, you know, a bit fragile with it. So I think she had waited until it was sure and then sent me the email being like, this is Bedford Square. They want this. <laughs> they want you. This is how much they're offering. This is the deal. Rather than sending me an email being like, I've had some interest from. Mm -hmm. And um, and then it all happened really, really quickly. But yeah, it's a, it can be a real up and down. So you need people who are going to love your work and are going to stand in your corner and just be like, whatever you write, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try and sell it whatever you do I'm here I believe in you and I believe in this book and even if it takes me 10 years to sell it I'll still believe in it and that's really important yeah mm. sorry that was a very long story <laughs> it, those kind of stories always are because I think a it takes a long time b it's not always a straightforward route um and what I I, I was thinking as you were talking about the, the kind of agent rejections that it's then very similar when you have to go through the submission process and again it's about mm. the right fit and the right editor and there might be things that get in the way like I remember having um one editor really liking the book but unfortunately there was already another book that was going to be published by them that they mm. said similar and so then they didn't buy my book and now I've heard recently that um a lot of the time that sales teams can be a lot more involved in acquisitions and um so there's so many different hoops to jump through before a book can be published and I, one thing I would say and you kind of brought it up there with your talk with your agent is find out what is going to happen if your book doesn't sell and ask that when you're kind of looking for an agent and find out whether they kind of swiftly move on with um and get rid of you or whether they want to um stand by you because I think that's really important um one of your passions we have to talk about is your fan fiction I know you're Mm. you've written basically more novels than uh I can count 
big just through yeah basically yeah tell us about that how's that made you a better writer uh I don't know that it has um (laughs) like fanfic is where like all of my worst habits um as a writer come out uh because it's just a playground you know it's it's not I'm not editing it I'm not really uh I mean I am editing like in a sense but not not really it's uh just sort of a a fun space to play in um and just you know do my correction of 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 a book that I read when I was a kid no I don't think it has made me a better technical writer or uh, creator of narrative in any way um I do think it has made me stronger as a writer because of the amount of criticism that can come um and it's a very fanfic is like one of the only spaces where as a writer you directly you don't have to but it's very hard to ignore the engagement of an everyday reader um if you're because it's right there so it's um connected to your account it's in your inbox Mm. in my case it's like sliding into your dms on instagram and twitter you know um because i've connect i'm connected across these platforms so people do seek me out sometimes aggressively through whatever means necessary um to to ask questions or to give opinions unsolicited or unsolicited or otherwise um so it, it allowed me the space to get used to that, to the idea that people are going to read and they're going to have their opinions and not uh, bear so much on their opinions in that way. Mm. Um, and it's not like I haven't ingra- engaged with people's opinions in the past, but usually that's been in kind of like a critical literary way, um, especially like coming from doing a master's at university you know you sit down in a create if you're in a creative writing course you sit down three times a week and stem and people tear your work to shreds um but they do it very critically mm. uh with a view to considering your writing and you as a writer they they're not sort of trolling you <laughs> on on a massive platform and calling you a bad person for because a character died you know it's a very different mode of uh, engagement, but it I think it has been good for me, mm. and I've learned a lot from it. And so, whilst it's not necessarily made me a better writer, it has made me a stronger one. I have more courage of my own convictions in what I write. I care less about what people think of me because I write. I don't really give that time of day. And I also can see the lovely thing is being able to see how transformative fiction can be for people. Like that's been so beautiful. Like, yeah, I've had some not great people and some not great experiences, um, but I've also overwhelmingly had Mm. positive ones. Mm. Like um, it would be wrong to like suggest in any way that my overall experience of writing fanfic and having an unexpectedly popular fanfic in my life as um 
it's been a negative thing like people say such like such meaningful things about the work that like it's you know it's helping them through depression it's you know even like really extreme things like it's stopping them from hurting themselves or and it's always giving them a way to grieve or it's helping them understand their their sexuality or helping them understand their own childhood trauma like these are massive massive things and there is like a burden in that Mm-hmm. in hearing those stories from people that you've never met because like that kind of power is like oh my god um but that's a good lesson too because then I learned that I'm not responsible for any of these people like it's really wonderful uh when they take something positive away from it like of course that's what I want but ultimately I'm not writing anything for anybody else. Mm. Like, I'm writing for myself and I would be writing all the same, even if nobody was reading. Um, and that, that has been a really important journey that I I don't think I would have learned until much later without fanfic. So um, I'm grateful for those, those journeys and those, those lessons. I think they're standing me in good stead for, for whatever's coming and I have absolutely no de- desire to ever look at Goodreads um <laughs> for this reason uh so yeah it's um it's helping I think so finally can you give us a little tease about what you're working on next I I I'm writing <laughs> I'm writing and yeah and I've got I'm gonna hopefully have some really fun announcements this year which I'm really excited about but yeah I am writing there are more books coming and there is more history there is more darkness there is more magic brilliant well that's exactly what we're looking forward to Emma thank you (laughs) for joining me on the podcast today oh thank you so much for having me that was Emma Hines talking about her historical novel The Knowing which is out now and available to buy And if you'd like to support this podcast, debut authors and independent bookshops, you can now shop in the Confessions of a Debut Novelist bookshop, hosted by bookshop.org, which I've linked down below in the show notes. If you fancy buying any of the books you've heard on this podcast, then the majority of them can be found in this bookshop. And if you can, I would really appreciate you supporting me, supporting the authors and independent bookshops by buying them through this online store. Thank you so much for listening. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Or if you've subscribed already, it'd be great if you could leave me a review. See you next time. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.